Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week I wanted to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference, Pendemonium. So Pendemonium is a two-day conference for innovators, collaborators, and anyone product-obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design, and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there. You should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. This week on Product Love, I sat down with Melissa Perry. She's the co-founder and CEO of Product Labs. So Product Labs helps companies grow and transform their product management organizations. And in addition to helping companies scale their product orgs, Melissa also was the founder or one of the founders of the Online School Product Institute. In this episode, Melissa talks about companies going through product transformations, how PMs can better utilize data, and how junior product managers can scale their careers. One topic we dove into was the difference between junior product managers and senior product managers. So the topic of breaking into product management has been, I think, covered thoroughly, but how do these fresh product managers begin to scale their careers? Young product managers, I think, wanna follow a framework. Like when you're new to anything, it's common to wanna follow a guidebook closely. So these young product managers might latch onto a toolbox and follow this process of experimenting, prototyping, and then shipping. But Melissa believes that the truly experienced product managers can take those tools and they can use them in the right context without having to be overly process driven. Junior product managers might follow this long process, right? Where senior PMs can easily apply these learnings that they've had in the past, these frameworks they've used in the past, to the problem at hand. So this all got me to thinking about how new product managers can become more experienced and confident in their decisions. I think in order to scale their careers, they have to spend more time scoping and thinking and work to broadly develop a vision for their product. Junior PMs can feel constrained, I think, to thinking about their product only sprint by sprint. And in this episode, Melissa delves into how junior PMs can can begin to think about their careers and what skills they need to develop and thinking beyond just the sprint. So what do you think? What makes the difference between a junior or a senior PM to you? How should PMs be scaling their careers? And what do you think they should be focusing on? Drop me a line at ebodic at pendo.io or reach out to me on Twitter at ebodic. Look forward to hearing from you. Well, welcome over to Product. Today, I have Melissa Perry, who's well-known in the product management community, both as a consultant, a speaker, a lecturer, and an author. Melissa, will you give us a little overview of your background? Yeah. So I got into product management a little over 10 years ago at a company called Capital IQ. There, I was called a business analyst, but after going to actual banks and being a business analyst, I found out that it was much more like product management. So I learned the ropes there and then I went to, I thought nobody really knew what product management was back then. So if I said what I did, everybody looked at me a little bit funny. 
And at the time, a lot of my friends were going into software engineering and I, I could code. I came out of Cornell. I have a background in operations research engineering. And I took a bunch of computer science classes there. So I said, oh, I'll go be a, an engineer for a little bit. And I went to Barclays Bank. I hated it within a week. I really wanted to leave. I kept weaseling my way back into product management there. Uh, it was just software engineering wasn't for me, but I stuck it out for a year. After that, I went to work at OpenSky, where I really got more into startups and learned about you know how product management operates in a company that is primarily built off of software. And that's where I really honed my craft. And I felt like I grew a lot there. I went on to work at a couple other companies, some B2B enterprise companies, um, some platforms throughout New York. Went off to uh, Italy to start my own company through a government-run startup accelerator there, which was wild and and weird, um, but very fun. And I learned a lot more about starting companies and raising money there. And then I came back to New York and I was really looking around for a head of product position. I didn't find any companies that I liked. And at the time, people kept calling me to come in and help them learn more product management, set up product management, train their people. And that's where I really started consulting. So for the last five years, I've been consulting through my company called Products Labs. We do two different types of things. First, we help train uh, product managers and develop them. We use an online school called Product Institute for that. Uh, we also do a lot of in-person trainings. And on the other side, too, we get our hands dirty and we help a lot of companies set up product teams and scale them. And that could be anything from really coming in and helping them figure out what their product strategy is and diving deep and pulling through the data. Or it could be getting a bunch of people who are already leaders there in a room and synthesizing what their product strategy is together, You know, putting that down into the team, scaling up the teams, doing org design. So really the works. And it changes with the different uh, types of companies we work with. So we work with anybody from um, growth stage, scaling up companies to enterprises going through transformation. So everything product in that way. Wow, there's a lot to talk about there. But first, let me start by asking about, you know, your kind of different roles, right? You talked about working in product management, software engineering, even product design. So you've covered a lot of the facets of making products. Tell me a little bit about what you learned from each different role. Yeah. So when I was first learning product management, uh, when they called me a business analyst, it was a very waterfall style of development. I didn't sit with the developers. I just wrote the specs. They were very, very long. I got you know applauded and pat on the back because they were so detailed and I never had to talk to the engineers. So that wasn't really about working with the team, but I did learn a lot about really thinking through the details of how do people use your products and making sure that they're well scoped out and well thought out. When I went to be an engineer, I came up with a, a better appreciation really of how do things actually get built in and what are, you know, what are the nuances that go into that? So when I left and became a product manager again, I felt like I had a better understanding. I had a better appreciation for it. And I got a lot further with my developers when I actually was working on an agile team, communicating with them, understanding estimation, you know, knowing that things take long, asking the right questions. And I think the engineering side really helped me with that, like being able to communicate with my team and bond with them better. But I, I rarely ever coded again. And I think I get a lot of people who ask me, should I code? Should I go take a development class? And I tell them no, because it helped me talk to my engineers. And that was my situation. But it also inhibited me from thinking bigger because I was always worried about, can I code the thing I'm specking out? And the answer was no, because I was a really crappy programmer. Like I sucked at programming. So I didn't know how to do much. And my team had to sit me down and be like, Melissa, you just write this out like 
what you think it should be. <laughs> we'll, we'll take care of the rest. Like we, we're kind of programmers than you. That's why, that's why you don't do this anymore. And I'm like, oh yeah. So I had to like get out of my own uh, skill limits to go back to product management and really think about, you know, what should this be? What should the vision be? But I always, I always like that. It helps me. I kind of bond and ask the right questions with my developers better. And at the same time too, throughout the whole process of whenever I did product management up until that point, I had also done UX design and I didn't know that it was two different things. So anything that I built, I also designed. I was in charge of all the wireframes. I did visual design. I'd go to Photoshop and mock everything up. And it wasn't really until about four years into my career that my boss was like, hey, so you've been doing UX design. You probably didn't know that, but we're actually going to hire somebody to do that now. So you don't have to worry about the design anymore. And I got really upset about that because I enjoyed that piece of it a lot. I really, really enjoyed coming up with the workflows and figuring out how people interacted with it and used it. So I guess approaching product management from like all three sides is you can really come up with a good foundation of how to work with your partners and, you know, with the designers and the developers, but it also makes you think about products in different ways. I will say like I approached everything from a very design centric standpoint when I was thinking about product and then I layer in the business sides of it as I, as I progressed in my career. So I think having a good foundation in um, everything or just understanding every side allows you to get really that holistic systems thinking approach to product management, which I think is critical. You can evaluate things, you know, for its feasibility, its desirability, you know, how much it actually, its viability, if it's going to produce stuff for the business, like being able to look at it from every side, I think makes really, really strong product managers. So I'm very thankful that I had that experience. Yeah, I think the challenge, and, and don't take it the wrong way, but there might have been a benefit for you being the crappy programmer in this oh, case, totally. <laughs> is that I see like when people have too much depth, not only do they come to be kind of the passionate about the problem, right? But they also start thinking, telling programmers how to solve the problem, right? How to write the code. And, you know, being kind of a, a little less of a programmer, you kind of avoided that, right? Yeah, I, I agree too. And I, you know, where I slipped up with it was with UX design. It took me a really, really long time to be able to pair with other UX designers and take my hands off the actual design because that I did go super deep in afterwards. And it, it was my only responsibility. Not in one job, I was just a UX designer. I didn't have any product responsibilities, which I also thought was wonky because we were just, they were like, oh, I'll just go design this stuff. And I'm like, but what is it to do? Like, how's it going to produce value? And I asked all the questions they didn't want me to ask because of the setup of the company. But yeah, like it, you try to take over, right? Like you try to do all the roles. And if you try to do all the roles, you can't do any of them. So I'm very thankful that I was a crappy programmer because, you know, I learned to step back and I was like, all right, you guys got it. I don't want to interfere with that. I've learned as you get more senior in your career and as I've moved into more leadership positions, I step back from the UX design as well. Sometimes I sit there and I'm like, man, all I want to do today is just make a wireframe. I'm like so tired of dealing with all the other stuff, uh, which I'm sure other leaders who've been practitioners get into that too. They're like, man, it'd be productive if I just built this. But you have to tell yourself no and step back and really like leverage a team for those things. So I'm, I'm very happy that it, it ended up the way it did. And I used to think uh, as a caveat to that too, like when I didn't know many people in product, like for a very long time in New York, I felt like there, I couldn't find any product managers. And when I did, I was like, oh, yes, like my people, you're here. Like, where were you? Were you under a rock? Like I couldn't find you before. But if I, when, when I had that, right, everybody kind of treated product as like the jack of all trades and the expert at none. And I'm happy that over the years, people are seeing like, no, this is actually like a particular skill set. 
And I've been doing a lot of competency frameworks for product managers lately. And we're, we do like a lot of skills-based assessments for the companies that we work with. And that was a big thing that went into the competency framework that I was looking at. I was like, you know what? I've seen so many of them and they were all about like, do you know UX design? Do you know tech? Do you know business? And it's like, yeah, but do you know product, right? And I think there is a very specific skill set and a specific competency that are needed for product managers that make them different than everybody else. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. So talk to me a little bit about that skill set, that competency while we're on that subject. And then I'm going to have to go back to Italy after that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like when I, when I think of like what makes product manager, right, different than a designer or different than a developer or different than somebody on the business side, it is kind of like looking at, they can look at the big picture, right, and synthesize it into something that is packageable, desirable, marketable, right, that meets all those criteria, And you have UX design on one side, which focuses mostly on the customer experience and delighting the user. And if you pull business into it, you'll start to get more towards product. But UX is very much about like solving users' needs and problems and really diving into that and crafting a great solution around doing that. Development is very much about how do we get this done? How do we build this in the best scalable way to deliver that value to our users? And the business is about like keeping, you know, keeping the whole business running. So you know, it, it looks at things that are outside of product development, like, you know, HR and finance and operations, right, to actually scale the delivery of products. But product management on its own, right, it, it's about this systems thinking of being able to look at all of that and say, like, how do I take this information, large amounts of information coming into me, distill it down to what's important, scope out something that people want to buy and use that's going to be delightful for them, that's going to meet our business goals and deliver customer value, right? and be feasible to actually build, how do I scope that down and make sure that it actually gets out there and does the things that it needs to do? And that is a very different skill set than all the other pieces individually. So I I don't see like that whole like jack, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, like that's a skill, like being able to really distill that down, prioritize, come up with an opinion of like, okay, you know, if we do this, this is what's going to happen. Or if we do this, this is what's going to happen, right? Being able to present those options, getting the buy-in for it, influence others into their way of working, right? Or into the direction that we want them to go to and using data to support that. I think that's a huge skill set. And I think it's it's very particular to product. So let's, let's get back to Italy before I forget that. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your time in Italy and what it was like. So it's been a year in Italy in 2013. There was a startup accelerator there called Tech Peaks. And what the premise was, which I I fell in love with, and that's why I went, was we're going to take 64 people from around the world, throw them together, and they're going to use lean startup principles to start companies. And some of the companies were already formed and they were looking for extra members or they wanted to develop it there. Other ones were like, oh, we'll have individuals meet, try to find partners and scale this up together or start this up together. So I went as an individual and met some amazing people. I now have friends in like 20 different countries all over the world, which is awesome. So we went and the the whole thing was like, you know, they'll pay for your housing. They give you a stipend so that you'll want to move to the Alps in uh, in Italy. And you get to pitch for 25,000 euros, uh, no equity from the government. And they'll give you cash to like start your company up. So I went and it quickly became a pattern that I see a lot of corporations do when they try to do the same exact approach inside and have the startups where it was like, okay, guys, form your team in like three weeks, pitch for the money. Once you get the money, you can't change your idea. So it's like, you you just came up with the idea. They're like, go validate it in three weeks and then go. And it's funny because I've seen companies do that as well now. So I'm like, this was, this was not just isolated to the Italy adventure there, but 
Yeah. So I went, we started a company. It was called uh, Flows By. Terrible name. We had a really hard time like naming that company, but we were trying to make it easier for e-commerce companies that were just starting up. Europe didn't have a lot of startup companies. I mean, e-commerce companies at the time, make it easier for them to provide like proof that they're a real company online and that they weren't scamming people. So like putting reviews on there, social proof that like people bought from them, you know, making it possible to get to that conversion faster. A lot of the e-commerce stores that were like in uh, Italy and Germany and everywhere else at the time, like they just had a product on a page with a credit card link that said like, hey, pay me for this. And you looked at it and went, I don't think this is real. I think this is going to steal my money. So those were really our target customers that we started working with. So it was interesting. I, I We started the company. I ended up leaving the company before the end of the program. Um, it was just like a founder thing. It was not really what I wanted to do. And then I came back to New York afterwards. But there are a bunch of companies that went off and started really cool things afterwards. Uh, there's a lot of people working in great organizations now from that in a nice little network of people all over all over the world for me to visit. So you'd, you'd say it was the program was a success? I'd say the program was a success in that it made everybody meet each other and we have very good friends now. I'd say if you were to run it differently, and they did, they did iterate this on the second round, right? So what they did in the second round was they realized we didn't give people enough time and we committed them too early to those 25,000 euros that they had to spend and, you know, no time to actually go validate their ideas. And that was the whole premise of the program. So the second round they re- when they ran it, they gave everybody the, the whole like six to seven months that we were there to validate their idea and pitch at the end. And that made all the difference. Like, so people could change teams, it could change ideas, it could go find it. And, you know, it really does take a long time when you're starting from scratch to really validate those ideas. And I think people take that for granted. So I'd say like our round was a very good, we were, you know, we were the test babies. <laughs> we, nobody, everybody was trying it out for the first time with us. But I think they did a really good job iterating on it on the second round. And those teams got to like really do the whole approach for it. And I think you hinted at that too, when you were talking about some corporations doing it that way, you know, the first Mm -hmm. way, right? Which is like, hey, three weeks, get money, don't pivot, don't change, don't adapt your idea. So, I mean, talk to me a little bit about the ideal way you think to run a program like that. Yeah, like you have to give people time. If you want them to go find brand new ideas, you have to give them time to go find brand new ideas. And I see a lot of corporations like set a budget and say, hey, you got to go spend, you know, $5 $5 million this year, like validating that new idea. And sometimes it doesn't take $5 million to actually validate a new idea. Sometimes it takes less, but if you don't spend it, you'll never get money after that. So corporations like use budgeting to drive their validation rather than, you know, user problems, which I don't, I don't think is right. But the right way to do it and the way that I've seen people successfully do it is they do take teams, set them up outside their corporations. It, and that doesn't mean like, you know, you have to spin off like a whole new business line, but they, they take them out of their day-to-day work they send them up, they give them the space to go out and, you know, validate user problems. And they give them a good goal and a mission on what they want that business line to look like. Like, is it something that's going to create cost savings for the company? Is it something that's going to be competitive against, um, you know, these other people who are solving problems, right? They give them a direction of what would constitute like a good working business line or good working product. They set them up and then they let them go out and really discover what the customer problems are put that work together, use some data, do the market research, right? And come back with a plan on how to actually test that. And then they fund the tests, right? And then once the test proves something is actually valid there, then you give them a little bit more money to scale and then a little bit more money to scale. I see a lot of corporations, as soon as somebody finds a problem, they're like, great, here's $50 million, go hire a hundred people in a year and build this. 
And just like any startup company, if you do that, you will go through insane scaling and growing pains. You don't have a strategy and you fund things before you have a strategy and you don't know how many people it's going to take. You risk slowing everybody down because now you have too many hands on deck and you just needed a small team to really get everything straight before you accelerated the growth. So you see a lot of people or a lot of companies, corporations, even startups taking on fundraising money, try to accelerate growth before you have product market fit. And I think you only accelerate growth after you have product market fit, because if you do it before, it distracts the team. You've got too many people, too many cooks in the kitchen. You don't have your strategy down. And that is when you have to stay small and iterate very, very quickly through your ideas to find out what latches. And as soon as you have product market fit, then you can put people around it and scale. But if you do it too early, you just risk blowing everything up. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and something to talk a little bit more about. You see a lot of entrepreneurs, especially if they have access to large sums of money, thinking about, okay, we need to, you know, and there's external pressures from their investors and others Mm -hmm. to spend that money to grow quick. And if you don't have that product market fit yet, you're actually making it harder to get the product market fit, right? Yep, exactly. And so talk to me now. I mean, you brought up something I'd love to dig into. Like, how do you know when you've reached product market fit? Yeah, I think you reach product market fit when you've got a product that you're selling repeatedly. I think it's a product that you're selling repeatedly. So you're not customizing it for every single person, which a lot of companies that I've seen before, like startup early stage, even a little bit later stage, you're customizing everything. So to me, that's not a product that's custom services with some kind of product attached to it, probably. But you're selling this product repeatedly to customers who are coming back and they still want more, right? So product market fit is really like finding the thing that people want to buy. They're happy with it. They're satisfied. Like they may ask for more, but you've got an audience and a targeted base of people who readily want to buy this from you. That's the product market fit that I see. Yeah, I think you mentioned a very important point that I think gets neglected sometimes. It's not just that they buy, but they're happy with it and they want to buy more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they might ask you for more features or something like that, but they're not like, oh, I just signed up and I want to walk out the door in six months because it's terrible, right? Like you, you have to have some kind of retention component to it. And you have to um, have an audience that you can grow rather than just churn out, right? And have to start fresh every time. So do you think retention is a better indicator of product market fit than the initial sale? That's a good question. I haven't actually thought of it that way. I I like to think of them both like you're increasing sales, but you're also your retention is going up. But I'd say yes, retention is huge when it comes to product market fit, because I don't think you have product market fit if you can sell it. And then people want to leave even after a couple months or a year or something, because that means that whatever product you did buy didn't satisfy their need enough for them to stay. So that tells me you didn't build the right product for the problem. Like you, your sales pitch communicated the problem in a way where people were like, yeah, I really need that. But you didn't deliver on the value in the actual product. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree. So let's talk about your career as an instructor, right? You've, you've been an instructor for product management courses, and I've been told you've coached over 5,000 product managers, all these little minds you've molded. <laughs> so talk to me about your syllabus. What's some of, some of the important frameworks there that people need to learn, people that they should follow, get information from, learn from, books they should read. Tell me about the whole process. Yeah. So when I first started teaching people about product management, it was very much about the whole go out, talk to your customers, formulate what the problem is, experiment through the different solutions. And that's still a very large part of what I teach today. But I think I've learned, you know, over coaching and and teaching so many people too, 
what I've, I've been trying to like synthesize, like what makes a good junior product manager versus a senior product manager and how do people learn? So I usually, when I teach people and they're at this kind of junior level and we, we say like, you know, I consider that like you have the job of a product manager. You probably are a product owner on a scrum team. This is not, you know, everybody, but it's most people. It's most people. You're a product owner on a scrum team. Maybe you write user stories. You're working with your, your you're supposed to be prioritizing your backlog. You're supposed to be keeping, they see it as keeping the developers busy, right? <laughs> In work, trying to synthesize like what people should be building. Let's say you have that job. So if we start there, I'm usually teaching people, okay, you have to be setting the right goals, right? So if you're building this feature, what's the goal? How do you know what's good for it? How do you know what your success metrics are? How do you know it's healthy? How do you come up with the right metrics and the right goals for what you want to do? Two, what problem are you solving for your user, right? So how do you know what problems your users have? Have you gone out and talked to them? Have you watched them use your product? Are you synthesizing those results and trying to figure out which of those problems will help you reach your goals from a business standpoint as well? And then I'm teaching them how to define what those problems are, explain it back to the team, work with the team to scope out what might solve it, run some experiments to get some feedback on if it's a problem worth solving and if it's a solution that you've come up with that might solve it. Once you do that, how do you pull that together into a holistic vision? How do you communicate that out? How do you pull in data to support your vision? How do you communicate to get buy-in from your manager and from your peers? How do you prioritize that against other things that you might be working on? How do you break that down for the team? How do you scope that into packageable releases that have enough value in it where you could put that out and people would actually want to buy it, right? So it's not just like a button on a page. And then how do you measure the results and iterate? So that's really what the core, you know, the core curriculum looks like is taking you through that process. And then a little bit of like working with teams, a lot of like understanding your users and interviewing and all those different skills in those toolbox. But what I found over time too, and what I advise like, people who, who get those skills down is the difference, you know, between a junior product manager and a senior product manager is that a junior product manager looks at that toolbox and they blindly like follow that process, right? Where they're like, okay, I got something new. Let me go out and interview people. Let me pull my data. Let me, you know, make an experiment. I'm going to experiment, 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 and then I'm going to prototype and then I'm going to ship. And they kind of follow it like a rote process. Whereas a senior product manager can actually apply the right tools within that process to the right context. So they might look at something and say, Oh, this is pretty straightforward. You know, it's it's something where it's already validated. We know it's a problem. Like we have all this data to support it. Let's just build the solution and ship it, right? Like we know what we need to do. Let's just get it done. Whereas a junior product manager might look at the same thing and say, oh no, but I have to go through my process. I got to go talk to users about this. I got to experiment around this. I've got to prototype it all up where it might be a straightforward thing and they don't need to do that. So context, I think is key for developing um, junior product managers and the senior product managers and teaching them like, hey, if I'm in this context, which of these tools is appropriate? What steps do I take? And to do that, I've been using something called the Prada Kata, which is based off Toyota Kata. And, and that is really about framing people's context and getting them to think through where are they now so that they choose the appropriate tool and the appropriate next step to do that. So the Prada Kata is really about, I ask you a couple questions. It says like, what is your goal? So you look at your goal and then it says, how far are you from the goal? What's the next biggest thing that you need to learn? So is it about a user problem? Is it about like your solution being right? Is it about how to design the solution? Is it, it could be anything, right? Like what's the next thing you need to do to feel a little bit more confident about releasing this out to users and, you know, getting the feedback and knowing you're hitting the goal. And then it says, what are you going to do to get there? So what's one step you can take? What tool are you going to use in your toolbox or create up like another, you know, something else that will help get you there? 
And then I help them plan it out and then they go do it. And then they reflect on their actions and they figure out where they are towards their goal. And I love that because it brings the context awareness into the toolkit. So it doesn't make it as much of a rote process. It makes it more like, hey, you have all these different frameworks and processes and all these things you could do, right? Like what's appropriate for you doing it for you where you are right now? Like what should you use? And I think that's absolutely key in getting from that junior level up to that senior level of product management. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about context for young product managers. Is that one of the, the things they struggle most with? And if it's not that, what do they struggle the most with? Yeah, I think that really is it. Because when you're starting out, right, like you're trying to latch onto frameworks. And I think that's why, you know, that's why Scrum is so popular, because it's a very literal framework, even though they'll say that it's not. But it is a very much like, do this and do that and do this. And this is how we do these things, right? Like, it's very prescriptive in the way that they do things. And People like that, right? Like they, and when you're starting out, when you don't know what you're doing, you want to follow a to-do list. You want to follow a framework or a process that is going to tell you exactly what you need to do to succeed. So that is usually where they start. Now, the problem is the, the hard part is breaking out of that. And that to me is the, the challenge I see for younger product managers trying to make it to that senior level, right? Is, and they don't have to be younger. It's just newer product managers too, right? Like if you're new, How do I get from I'm a junior product owner on this team to like I can run and launch like a new product line and see its success and grow it in like um, one of these businesses? To me, that is a challenge for them. So they they tend to struggle with that context piece. I see people struggle as well um, when they're new with the scoping and with getting buy-in. So I don't think some of those product managers spend enough time really figuring out like, what is it that we need to build? How do I scope this out? How do I communicate it with my team? How do I form like a longer vision? That's not just a sprint, but like really looks at the long term and pulls it back into breaking it down into sprints. That's one that I see newer people uh, struggle with as well. Always like talking with customers, getting out, understanding your customer, really like honing in on that and not just looking at them as, you know, surface level. I understand what you're doing. And then data. And data is a hard one because most companies just don't have the data that product managers need to be successful. So I'd say like, that's not just a newer product manager struggle. That's an every product manager struggle. We do a lot like with VPs and CPOs in these companies now, and we train them and we help them. And almost always when they come in uh, and we, we help a lot of the companies hire those too. When they come in, it's the first thing they need. They're like, where's the data? Can somebody get me the data? And it's like, oh no, we don't have it. <laughs> this company doesn't have data, even though we've been pushing on it for six months. And that inhibits those teams so much and companies just don't realize that. But if you want great product managers, you need to give them the tools to be successful. And I think data is absolutely key there. Yeah. And I want to ask about older product managers and by, sorry, younger and older, I really mean (laughs) less and more experience. But let's talk about that data for a second. Why don't they have this data? I don't think they set up the infrastructure for it. So at some large corporations that I've worked with, they just don't have data infrastructure because they built the code like 40 years ago. And they're these giant monoliths and they haven't instrumented them for data. So they they don't realize that they need data. They're used to like an output centric approach of like, you know, we just do project management where we scope out this project and then we go ship it and success is shipping, right? So they never really had any goals in those corporations that were outcome based. So they didn't think the data was important. Or I I always think there's, I'll say too, I, I think there's two types of companies, right? So there are companies that are primarily software-based where what they sell, their product is software, right? Like, so Pendo is is a software company, right? Because you sell software that helps you get the data out of it. But then there's other institutions that are like 
you know, 100 years old and they're financial institutions or insurance institutions. And what they sold fundamentally was a financial product. But now in this day and age, you can't just sell like a financial product. Like you can't just sell a loan. You have to have the infrastructure of software around it in order to deliver that loan's value and scale it up. So there's a lot of companies that primarily didn't see software as the main product that they sold that I think are coming into like a reckoning these days where they're like, oh, wow, like how do I actually sell this loan without having software attached to it? It's like you can't, like you have to make it able for people to manage those types of things. So the companies that grew up like with software as their product, I think get this more than the companies where software was not their main product for a long time. Because the ones that came up with software, when you sell things, right, like you have to attach the revenue back to the software that you're actually building. And that's a little bit more streamlined. Not that every software company has good data because they don't, I, I've seen that. But I think it's, they, they get that they should, at least more than sometimes the corporations. And the corporations, I think, built themselves a long time ago on old monoliths of code that make it really hard to instrument with data now. So now they're realizing they need it, but it's really hard to get it because of the way that they're operated, the way that they built things in the past. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the loan, you know, and, and now it feels like things are more of an experience, right? And a lot yeah. of that experience is done via software. And mm-hmm. if they don't have kind of that that wrapper around this core product, in this case, the loan, if that experience isn't there, like make it easy to sign off on documents, make it easy to upload documents, have a list of everything you need for the loan, then that experience is horrible. Word of mouth goes out over, you know, the biggest piece of software, so to speak, the internet, and it's hard for them to get more customers, right? So this these traditional companies are now having to quickly evolve into like, you know, being software digital first wrapped around the core product, right? And that's got to represent a ton of challenges. Yeah, it does. And it's, I have seen that over and over again. And I honestly think the companies that don't see that, like one of the biggest things I see in these corporations is that they still have business over on one side and they still call it IT. They still got tech over on another side, right? And they do not attach the revenue that they generate through the business back into the software products because they're not organized around these business lines. So if you take like, a loan product, they're not connecting the software all the way down. They just scope out the project for somebody to like fix something in the loan and throw it over to the IT team. So IT is always seen as cost and the business is always seen as the revenue generators and they don't connect those things and see that it's all one thing. Like your business is software. Like your business will be software for almost every company that we have launching today. If you want to sell it to consumers, it's definitely going to be software because how are you going to get it out there? How are you going to allow them to purchase it? So I think corporations have a long way to go to like tie those revenue back in. And I, I feel like I've been saying this a lot over the last couple of months, you know, working with some people or, or doing some presentations for people where I'm, I'm trying to tell them like product is a business function. Like it, product is your business. It, it tells you how to run your business, scale your business, figure out what to, to do. And you may have people in financial institutions who are figuring out like what is the exact loan type we offer or like you know, what should be the APY on it or like what should be my percentage discount or anything like that. And that's fine. There's a science to that. But getting that loan out, the experience around that loan, like how people get it, you know, if you should offer the loan at all, right? Those are all like product decisions and they're a key business component to modern companies. And a lot of corporations have not caught up to that yet. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And, you know, obviously, or at least to me, 
you know, tying the business side and the IT side together is, is a role for the product manager, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's uh, and it's not, I've seen some people do that where they're like, okay, well, they'll just sit in the middle and translate. And you're like, no, we're all one team here. Like this whole company should be thought of as one team. And if you have a business line that does like credit cards, right, you've got people that are figuring out what type of credit card to offer to which type of people, if they're approved or not, like on the financial side, the terms for the credit card, that's fine. But you also have people figuring out like, what would be a delightful credit card? What are new rewards that we could actually do for people? Like, how could we make it easier for them to pay online? I love like what Capital One did with their credit card where they made it so you don't have to call for travel notifications. They just took that away for AI. And as much as I don't like Capital One's rewards, because I think Chase has way better, I, I look very into my credit card rewards, but <laughs> like you think Chase has much better uh, reward system. Capital One makes it so easy to be a Capital One member. That is just like, you know, they just really do think through in the credit card area what people need and one, how to reduce costs on their end, because I'm sure that was super manual before, but they also make it easy for you to just do what you need to do with your credit card. Like I had to cancel one and I could do it online. Like what credit card company lets you do that online? Capital One does. So now I'm like, man, if I have to open another one in the future or if something changes, I'm totally going to go with them because they made it so easy. And I think that's like, I, I just think, that type of mentality applied to things that are like older industries really makes a difference today. And and that's where corporations have to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree. I I think that's great. And there's, there's a huge opportunity for corporations now to differentiate themselves under things that seemed very commoditized, right? Like loans, like the loan process where you now can really differentiate yourself and, and grow your business and take it away from some of the maybe your traditional competitors by having an experience that's just much better. Yep. Yep, exactly. And it's one of those things where like you've already solved the big problem where, you know, people need loans, but now you just got to figure out how do I give them an experience of getting a loan, which makes it like 50 times better than my competitors. And honestly, so many of those companies are so far behind. It doesn't take much, but I think some of the corporate bureaucracy and and the slow roll of having 45,000 people that you got to change over to those concepts, right? It, it does put them at a, a loss. It makes it slow to do those things. And I, it, unfortunately, if they don't hurry, you know, it's going to be other startups that are going to come and take it away. Well, let's loop back to that question I was going to start, you know, <laughs> that I had a while back, I guess I shouldn't say start with, but I had a while back. What's the biggest thing older and more experienced, I should just say more experienced mm-hmm. product managers, what do they struggle with? Ooh, um, so what we've been working with a lot of people on is making that leap from a practitioner product manager to an executive. So how do you go from being like, okay, I'm really good at being a product manager. I can launch product lines. I can be like the most senior person on the team. I can lead like new products. I, you know, I've got this cold, but how do I now go to a VP of product? How do I now go to a chief product officer over a large portfolio? And that's usually the thing that's missing from people who are more experienced. It's hard to make that leap. Because if you're a great practitioner, what you've been doing a lot is execution. And as you move up the ladder in product management, it's one of these few careers where, uh, actually it's not, it's actually very similar to other careers where just because you're great at execution doesn't mean you'll be great at leading or um, strategy. And your job changes a lot in product management from execution to strategy. And then you have to enable other people to go execute. So how do you start enabling teams how do you start thinking about the financials of the company and pulling your software decisions back into that, your product decisions back into the financials? That's a really big part. Some companies are really good at that. Some product managers I've seen are actually like phenomenal at that. And there's some large corporations that 
make them do that, which is cool. But most of the uh, more experienced people I see have a really, really hard time with that because they've never been asked to do it before. There's also like different strategy frameworks or thinking about like growth, like that, you know, having like the playbook for like what strategies work in which companies, like if you are a growth stage company, what are the different areas to actually sustain growth, right? Like how do you bring it back into like what the growth metrics are to, I guess, like understanding valuations. If you're a company that has investors, right. Understanding that retention, like those types of metrics, right. And what's actually going to pull for your product. So it comes a lot more back into like how your business is run and what stage you're at. And I think that becomes critical for finding the right type of leader. So understanding those different playbooks or, or what's actually needed there. And then scaling teams, right? Like getting your org design down, knowing how to organize people around the right teams. When you become a leader as well, it's not just about having product managers. It's about having you know, data analysts to help you pull the data or synthesize it. It's about having um, researchers on the team. It's about, you know, it's about building out a team that's a comprehensive organization and not just growing a couple individual product managers. And, and that's a big shift as well. Thanks. I think that was a great answer. And there's a lot to dig into there, but I want to move on to, to talking about high quality decision-making. So let me step on to something you, you wrote on Medium a, a little while back, and that's product people know that data is the driver of high quality decisions and decision-making now, but few of them can accomplish the translation of that data to making better decisions. So can you expand on that and talk a little bit about what product managers can do to better utilize data? Yeah, I think they they usually have trouble, I think, taking the data, synthesizing it and figuring out like, what's the right data to support this? And I think that all starts with a hypothesis as well. So we actually had this conversation. We have a couple um, product data analysts on our team who are new to product, but they're very good data analysts and they're, they're learning it. So we're teaching them. And when we started talking about things like market research or pulling data, we had a conversation about like, what makes this different than what you were doing before as it applies to product, right? Like, how do you take this and know that you're going to be good at it with product? And what they came up with too was having that hypothesis-driven approach. They said, the biggest thing that I learned from the work that we do is that everything is driven by a hypothesis. So we start with what are we trying to learn? And then we tactically get the data and we pull that back into the hypothesis to prove if it's true or not, right? And that defines all the research and all the things that we do around things. And I think that's key. So I see a lot of product managers just get, I think, swamped with too much data and they don't know how to pick through and figure out what's important. So your like signal to noise ratio is really, really high there. You're not sure what you should be paying attention to. And it kind of paralyzes them with fear. So like I had this problem too. I had um, I was doing like A-B tests on a product a while ago, you know, this many years ago, but we were trying to figure out if we were going to increase conversion on this one specific, you know, site that I was doing. And we're A-B testing away and I'm like really looking at the data and I'm like, oh man, you know, it hasn't increased, it hasn't increased. And it was so focused on like getting that experiment out, testing it, coming back with data and looking at that data that I didn't stop to realize that what we were testing around wasn't really the problem for the user. And I had to really pull myself back and say like, okay, if all this data is coming out flat after this couple of weeks, that means that whatever I'm testing is not the right variable. Like we're not actually making a difference here. Nobody's actually seeing this. So we're just testing around the wrong thing. And I think those types of decisions or those types of realizations are sometimes what hold up product managers. So, you know, high quality decision-making is really about tying the data back to the decision that you have to make in a way that either supports it or confirms that it's not the right way to go. 
but it's not just about like shoving data at people. And I see that in a lot of OKRs as well. Like I, I see, I ask people what their goals are and they'll give me like a list of seven things. And I'm like, how do you make a decision when you have seven different variables to actually look at that? That's kind of impossible. So I think like very experienced product managers are like, and make high quality decisions based off the most important and the right data. And they're able to synthesize that framework down into something that's easy to understand that is definitive. And then they, they might not have all the information, but they can look at it and say, okay, this is our best foot forward. Like let's, Let's take this path and let's go and rally people around that. Awesome. So talk to me now about building products. That's definitely something I want to talk about. And more specifically, how product managers should be approaching building features and how product teams should prioritize there. Yeah. Prioritization is, everybody has this issue with prioritization. They always ask me, how do I prioritize? And when somebody asks me that question, I ultimately know that they have no strategic framework in place to help them prioritize. So there's probably no goals around what they should be hitting. There's probably no constraints around it. So it tells me like higher up, something's missing. So it's usually where we start. So it's easy to prioritize when you have a good framework in place that tells you like, what are the outcomes that we're expecting from here? You know, what are the strategic intents of the company? So I teach everybody our uh, strategy framework, which goes, you know, vision for the company, strategic intents, which are like your three top priorities from a business standpoint. So that could be like grow into a new market or launch a new business line or diversify like your revenue, that type of stuff. And then you break that into product initiatives, which are very much more about what are the problems we're going to solve around the product portfolio that we have here that we can actually achieve those strategic intents with. And then the teams go figure out what the solutions are, the features are to get there. Now, when that is in place, it's easier for product managers to look at it and say, okay, if our product initiatives around solving this problem for users and our outcomes that we're really looking at here is reducing the time it takes for them to, you know, complete these tasks or something like that, right? Like they can now look at every every option that they have and say, does this do that? Does this one do that better? Does this one do that better? And they start to make choices. If you have nothing like that, it's very hard to have product managers prioritize anything. So ultimately, like all your teams need to have some kind of framework in place that helps them prioritize that. It's not always on the product manager to do all of that themselves. That's a team sport, right? Like that's an organizational thing that needs to be accomplished there. So I, I will start there. When they think about like building the features, it's really about like, what can we, I, and there's like a difference between products and features, right? A product I see as something that's like packageable and sellable on its own. So it stands on its own. So like you can put it out there, you can sell it, you can put a price around it. And it's just like, here's our product, right? Like you might choose to, pricing is separate, but like you might choose to bundle it with something else. But like, it, it's, it's enough value where it stands on its own. If you release that, people are like, oh, I have this complete thing that takes care of this whole job to be done. Whereas a feature is just a piece of that, right? So it might be just something that allows you to get more value out of that product. So when we're thinking about building features, it should really be about how do I build a feature that helps enhance the goals of the product? So that should go back into the success metrics and the framework there, prioritize around like what the biggest drive is for the company. So going out, and that's always going out, understanding your users, trying to figure out like what problems they're solving, what are the gaps in your product that they're unhappy with. We try to look at like why are people leaving, why are they churning, or or what can we do that's different, that's delightful. If people are pretty satisfied, that they might be able to get more value out of. So we think about that, and then uh, we investigate it. We do some experiments around it. We use data to help you know tell us if it's worth doing. We also look at the costs of doing those things because nothing is free, although we would like to think so. And then we put together like, you know, a business case of like why we should be going after this feature or this product. And that doesn't have to be like 
uh, set in stone thing. It should be a living thing, but it gives us like a framework for really thinking about how to approach that product, why we're building it and, and putting the vision around it. So I think that's the way that we really should be thinking about how do we build things that people are actually going to like. Damn, so many questions to ask you in so little time. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Melissa now and what she sees in the future. Let's start there with like, what are some trends you see in the future? Or what is a big trend you see for the future of product management? Yeah, so I think I've seen this weird trend happening lately. So when I first started speaking about product management, I called it lean product management. And it was my first like talk was in 2013 at Lean UX NYC. And I was teaching like a Skillshare class back then too on lean product management. And it was all about getting people to like focus on the user and understand their needs. And I think we've done a better job in product management on knowing that that is a core competency that we need. So I'm happy to see like everybody's focusing on the user. But now I think it's gone completely the other way where nobody looks at the business. And I, I find a lot of teams are very much like, oh, you know, this is what the user wants. And I've got all these requests from the users. Like, I'm not sure how to prioritize them. And I'm like, okay, but like, what about the business? And they're like, oh, our job is not to think about the business. I'm like, no, 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 that's still your job. So I think we're still on a quest to find some balance in product management where we're sitting at the middle, where we can look at the customer and understand the value, but we also look at the business and we're using the business priorities as a lens to figure out which customer requests to actually do. And that's how I think about it. But I still think we, we tend to like swing one way or the other way and creating successful companies, I think is right there in the middle. Like you want to obsess about the customer, but you want to do it in a way where like you actually make money and you're scalable and sustainable because otherwise a bunch of people are going to lose their jobs. So I still think we need to do a better job of that. I think what we're also going to see is, I think with Scrum, we saw this trend of putting a ton of product owners on um, Scrum teams. So I go into companies that now have like 400 to 500 product owners on these teams. As product managers get more experienced, right? I think you need less people to cover different scopes of areas. So I, I think we over-rotated by hiring everybody in these corporations, right? So like we have very, very large teams. We have a lot of product owners. We have a lot of developers. But the thing is that scale, there's a certain point where that starts to slow you down and that you have too many people for not enough scope. And I think we'll start to see these trends where organizations will start to stabilize around smaller tech teams. And I don't mean smaller by like, you know, reducing 45,000 people to 100. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just that you'll start to see less people around bigger scopes of work, which I think is right, because that's telling me that you're also prioritizing and you're not trying, you're not getting in the build trap and just like building everything. So I think we're going to see a trend of that as well over time. And that's, to me, how you pick up speed in those areas too. Like you need smaller teams, more focused teams, more tightly intertwined, you know, groups of people around a certain product or problem solving them. Um, and that's how you get that leverage and speed. So I think we'll see that. I'm excited to see, I, I'm seeing too, there's very different types of product managers. And I think we're going to see some distinction in the different roles and different types of people going out. So, you know, when we hire product leaders, we look for the same thing. You're like, you can be a B2B product manager, or you can be a consumer product manager, you see a lot of product managers who work for consumer companies might have more of a marketing edge to them compared to like an enterprise product manager B2B who might be like more businessy focused or user experience driven. I think we're going to start to see a little bit more specialties in product management because it's such a wide breadth of people. And I think there might be some more role distinction or background distinction actually associated with the type of work because I think what you would do 
if you were like a product manager for, let's say, like a dating website that runs off of ads and getting more acquisition people on it, right? Like an acquisition-focused product manager is, I think, different than a retention-focused product manager. And we might see some differences in capabilities and distinctions in there coming out. I'm curious to see if that happens. But I do see different trends that way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's interesting. You mentioned early on this like overcorrection, right? I think of it as like the pendulum tendency, right? Where yeah. like, you know, we're not listening to customers at all. And so it's going to swing the other way now to like, we don't listen to anyone but customers. You see this yeah. pendulum up. I'd love to dig into that at some point and talk to like a psychologist to see why humans are that way. But uh, we definitely, yeah. I definitely see people overcorrecting in different areas where they had underperformed in the past. Mm-hmm. So a couple of final questions for you before we run out of time. And I feel like I could talk to you for another couple hours, but uh, let's, let's stick to two more questions. And I'll ask you, you know, <laughs> I usually ask this is what's your favorite product and why? But in your case, kind of like me, maybe it's what product do you hate the least, right? I mean, if you seem a little bit like me where you like, you always want to make things a little bit better. So what product is your favorite or should I say what product do you hate the least? I, oh, so they took away my product that I hated the least, which was Inbox. And now I'm very upset about it. So I I used Inbox to like manage my life. Like my email is my to-do list. And when they took away Inbox with Google, they screwed up my entire flow of like how I work. And that made me so upset. And the regular Gmail is just not the same. It doesn't have the same swipes or interactions. And I can't snooze the things I used to. I'm very, very mad about that. So I think Inbox was like a great product that obviously got created by like a group of people who I'm pretty sure like went rogue and did that because you could just tell it's not like the same as Gmail. And it was so user focused and it was so much about like giving people a workflow and a way to do that. And you could tell that they got their people, right? Like they really understood how people used email and especially like, I felt like I was the exact target persona for it. And then they took it away. So I, that was my favorite product. I'm really mad that they didn't just make inbox the regular Gmail. I'm sure they had reasons. I have absolutely no idea what those reasons are, but that is my least hated product. That's awesome. So a final question for you today, you know, what are three words to describe yourself? Ooh, one tired <laughs> doing, doing so many things, but now I, I'm, I'm excited to do things. Uh, one I'd say, Ooh, it's so hard to put it like down into one word. I never really like went through this exercise. One curious. I'd say I'm always curious about new things. Like I like learning about new things. I like learning about domains outside of product management that will help us with product management. So I'm always like looking to read books and, and looking at different topics that will help further the craft or are different. So love learning. Two, ambitious. I feel like I very much want to help shape the way that product management is going to be perceived in the future and grow it and, and help like a lot of people find homes and companies that are that are doing product management well and helping those companies do it well. So like, I don't know, like I, I, I really want to see a world where people walk into a company and they know exactly what to do with product management and then they rock at it and everybody rocks at it. So I want to do everything I can do to help that. And then three, I'd say resilient. I think that's a good word because I'd say like, I've failed a lot in my experiences and I see them as, as learning experiences. And some of those failures have been pretty big and some of those have been smaller, but every step, I feel like I I try to learn from it and move forward and just keep going. And that's probably very, I'm very mission driven of like trying to make product management better. So I think that helps, but I think resilience is absolutely key with this profession. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time, Melissa. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you. It was so great talking to you. 
This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>